Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Patricia Cavanaugh, Trish, uh, who's an associate professor of pediatrics, Boston University School of Medicine, Boston Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, we've talked on the Frontline before about a very important topic that we consider in, in medicine. Some areas are going to see a lot more than others, but... Um, um, this population, we need to talk about it specifically. We've gotten a lot of good evaluation, a lot of good reviews, a lot of good feedback about our pediatric episodes. Because honestly, uh, as emergency physicians in general, we have some a little bit of trepidation when it comes to these smaller versions of our species. And so, you know, talking about these types of topics are very important, and I think it's a good topic to review. And we're talking about sickle cell disease. Um, the, the exact numbers. Completely not, not completely known. The CDC thinks it affects about 100,000 Americans, the actual disease um, occurring about one out of every 365 uh, African-American births and occurs among about one out of every 16,300 Hispanic-American births. And then about one in 13 African-American babies is born with the actual sickle cell trait. So it's an important thing. Certain areas of the country, of course, are going to see a higher concentration, higher number of cases in my particular region. We don't see a huge number uh, number of cases, but it's still something that's very important. The management is is evolving. What we're finding is evolving, and, and especially with regard to the opioid epidemic, it's something very important to talk about. So, uh, Dr. Cavanaugh, thanks for joining us here on the front line. I'm glad to be with you today. So tell us a little bit more about, I mean, I mentioned just some of the basic statistics from your standpoint, uh, doing pre, uh, pediatric emergency medicine side of things. Uh, how do you give us a little background on the prevalence, what we see and some of the challenges we're going to, we're going to experience. Yeah. So children with sickle cell disease, I think, you know, just like adults, um, the most common reason they come to the ER is for treatment for uh, painful crises. Um, I think there's a hesitation a lot of the times to treat children uh, with pain medications such as IV opioids, morphine, Dilaudid, um, but it's just as important to treat their pain aggressively as it is in the adult population. Now, with most of the pediatric, uh, well, let's, okay, let's kind of backtrack a little bit. With adults, you know, for the most part, we, have, we already have a known diagnosis, at some point, other than if there's a strong family history and it's evaluated early, um, in pediatrics, it may be the an early uh, just an initial presentation. It may be a kid showing up to your emergency department that doesn't have a known diagnosis. Um, what are kind of what what's that play out uh, in terms of that initial presentation? How often are we going to know you know relatively that we have the diagnosis there uh, versus something where we're going to have to pick it up and kind of go down that trail as emergency physicians. Right. So in the United States, we're lucky. Um, all 50 states do newborn screening for sickle cell disease. And there's a very uh, robust system in place where parents are contacted and children are connected to the specialist. So most children who are born in the U.S. know that they have sickle cell disease from a very early age. Um, those who are coming in from other countries, so at my center, Boston Medical Center, we see a lot of people coming from other states, but also from around the world, um, especially the Caribbean and uh, Eastern Africa. And so some of those patients that we see, um, definitely a couple times a year, they don't even know they have the disease, and we are diagnosing them in the ER. Uh, and we tend to have a higher sense of 
you know, um, index of suspicion when someone comes in complaining of severe pain, especially in the bones. Um, and then when you get a little bit more history, they, they had this before, uh, but no one has ever really looked. And the CBC can definitely clue you in when you see profound microcytic anemia. So that's usually how we do it. But a lot of our kids will come in as known, uh, you know, with a known diagnosis of sickle cell. We know the challenges with the immigration status of folks coming to the United States, but also, you know, access to care is always a huge issue within the United States. So you have the initial screening, but, you know, whether, you know, that actual follow-up and long-term management takes place um, with our patients in terms of the prevention, monitoring, overall management of sickle cell disease. Um Give us the, the, the two major sides, you know, the sickle cell disease, the anemia-based versus just the trait, and uh, the presentation of things that we're going to see to kind of tip us off uh, from the emergency medicine setting. I know most people who are listening probably know all this stuff, but let's just review it for the sake of it being not a in-your-face every single day diagnosis for most of us. Right. And so sickle cell disease is really complex. I think most of us who work in the ER, the first thing we think about is pain. Uh, that's what patients are presenting with. And we always have to keep our minds open that pain is the tip of the iceberg. We have to ask about fever because these patients are functionally asplenic from a very young age. And so they're prone to overwhelming sepsis. They may complain of all bo- you know, whole body pain, but they may be uh, you know, entering multi-system organ failure. So we have to be thinking about that. Chest pain in patients with sickle cell disease is very is a cause for great concern. Um, it could represent a unique process in sickle cell called acute chest syndrome, which is actually the leading cause of death. Uh, so essentially you develop a pulmonary process, whether it's a pneumonia, which we see in children, or in adults, they've often had a pain crisis for a couple of days and they can throw a fat emboli. Um, and when they have you know, clots and basically vasoclusion occurring in their pulmonary vessels, uh, that's a, a great setup for uh, sickling of cells um, and can really uh, cause tremendous injury quickly. Um, a headache. So uh, patients with sickle cell disease, when they come in with headache, stroke has to be on your differential diagnosis. Um, you shouldn't just assume that it's a migraine. Uh, so we, we see a lot of ischemic strokes in children and in older adults. And so they'll present with paral- you know, facial paralysis, uh, you know, typically a sided paralysis, but uh, in that transition age, where we look at the older teens into their 20s, they can present with hemorrhagic stroke. Um, abdominal pain can be a number of different things. Anything from splenic sequestration to gallbladder disease, cholecystitis, um, and then rarely they can actually uh, infarct their liver. And so we have to be thinking about that. And then a lot of young men in particular, teenagers uh, into young 20s, they often will complain of belly pain, but you have to really ask them about priapism. Uh, so they're embarrassed. Uh, some of them may not realize that that's a complication of their disease, but it's definitely um, a, a real concern because it's an emergency. You need, you know, you need to try to really uh, get that under control as soon as possible. And the last thing is, you know, these patients are younger, presenting with all of these things. When I'm talking about stroke, it's a 25-year-old, you know. I'm saying consider stroke in your differential diagnosis. The one thing I forgot to mention, pulmonary embolism is something that we have to think about. I've seen it as young as in children of 15 years old. Um, so we, we're really 
you have to think of these patients as vasculopaths, your sickest 75 or 80 year old diabetic, just frame shift them back into their teenage years, 20s, and you start to see all these complications. So it's a very serious disease. Sickle cell trait, on the other hand, tends to be a pretty benign diagnosis. And unlike sickle cell, most people do not know they have it unless someone really did review their newborn screening and made sure they told the parents a couple of times that they have this condition where they're a carrier for sickle cell disease. On rare occasions, my friends in Colorado see this, where you suddenly go to elevation, you know, go skiing in the Rockies, go to 12,000 feet, 14,000 feet, and you actually can develop splenic sequestration just by having sickle cell trait. Uh, another rare complication is overexertional. Um, if you are military and at basic training and you have sickle cell trait, you may develop rhabdomyolysis with severe exertion. Um, so that's a, another rare complication, but something we think about. The complications from sickle cell trait, though, are uh, unusual. Um, it's always something to think about. If you have someone who, you know, may have one of these conditions where, you know, you're in the, at elevation suddenly, or um, they've, you know, ran a marathon and suddenly, you know, they're not doing so well, it's something to think about. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. It's a uh, the uh, and the, the important thing to remember, and, and I think that's where you know the stuff. It's easy if somebody comes in with a known diagnosis. Many times, people with a lot of care and the and in those that are with the specialist, they know a lot about their disease process. They know exactly about what's going on, and so those are the easy ones. I think you know, especially talking about the sickle cell trait, you know, and the potential of um, you know. I think let's with the sickle cell trait, the potential of then marrying or having a child with somebody who then can produce the the homozygous the the sickle cell get the s and the s uh, side by side and actually uh, get the disease so you know where you have that potential of actually not having a linear transmission pattern of disease 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 but trait 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 and then eventually somebody actually having the disease i mean it's a good chance to get back into that basic sciences um, you know, get out your little square here. We're going to talk about how we make the make the beans bigger and smaller, taller, and shorter. Uh, remember all your um, all your genetics, your chromosomes. The eleventh pair of chromosomes is the one associated with the uh, normal hemoglobin production in sickle cell. There is a mutation or error in that um, thought to be potentially um, associated or a response to malaria. Um, and I always heard that and thought that was interesting. How a disease we deal with now is actually a response to a disease process uh, that they that the blood was exposed to to make them more tolerant uh, of the malaria type things. And sickle cell disease is going to be the sickle cell um, is the genetic disease itself. Uh, that's where they have both the mother and the father passing along um, the sickle cell trait. Um, it can also go other ways. So if you've got two parents that are sickle cell, um, you've got uh, or at least carrying the disease theoretically. Um, your carrot, you're going to have a 25% chance of passing on the actual disease with that S and S. Um, you have the heterozygous um, with the 50% chance of having the sickle cell trait. That is one sickle cell um, passed down and one getting the more normal genetic pattern. And then theoretically, 25% chance of completely normal getting the um, getting the normal cells, the A and the A um, as well. So you know you're talking about getting your box square out there and looking at how all these things work out. Um, with parents. And of course, if you've got uh, a parent, um, their genetic code, if they're passing along just S's or they're passing along 
um, just A's that can change it up just a little bit. So getting back to your basic sciences there, I know that your head hurts now, but you can count that as, uh, as CME for your review of the basic sciences for today. Um, so really it depends on where we're coming from the parents, um, their known, their treatments, um, that they're they're with, whether they're involved with the specialist already or not. Um, you mentioned some of the things to look out for. And of course, I think you guys with where you are, uh, a, a center in the country where you have a lot of travel, a lot of population with potential risk to it as well, but many do not live in a place that has a lot of uh, immigration into it, um, specifically those higher risk for sickle cell or sickle cell treat, uh, trait, um, and or may not have a, a significant uh, demographic population where there's higher risk that is in that area. So the numbers are, uh, the numbers really aren't there. So you don't get a lot of practice with sickle cell. I mean, even in my area, I work at a community-based hospital and, and I may see a, one or two sickle cell sign in a month. Um, when I was at the university-based setting, we had several more, but you know, it's still not something we're seeing on a daily basis. What are some of the things, the assumptions and mistakes uh, and considerations that, that community physicians are going to need to have when it comes to this population if it's not something you deal with on a daily basis and don't have uh, protocols in place? In place. Exactly. So I think the key thing um, to really keep in mind, so this as I was describing all of the complications that this patient population faces. So when they're coming into the ER, number one, most of the time they don't want to be there. As much as you may not, <laughs> you may have seen them, you know, a couple months ago. Um, the one thing that I think people uh, assume is that the patient is there for some kind of gain. By and large, they don't want to be there either. They're coming in because they haven't really been able to handle things at home. And so the number one thing I would urge people to do is to see them quickly. Uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes is that patients are left in the waiting room. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes by the time you get to see them, they are much sicker than when uh, they were when they first arrived. Um, so really early evaluation can head off a lot of trouble. Um, if they are coming in with a painful episode, I've done research in children and adults, uh, but you know, talking about children today, the earlier you can get them in and start them on pain management, the faster and more likely they are to go home. And so in our center, and we actually follow the NIH guidelines that really lay out what to do for kids presenting with pain, um, children with sickle cell disease specifically. And so the one thing that they strongly recommend is that all children be triaged at a high severity level. So we use ESI as the, our triage uh, protocols, um, screening, and so we triage them as the ESI-2. Um, if we think that they have a sickle cell-related complaint, uh, pain, headache, abdominal pain, you name it. Um, the, then the next thing is that we treat their pain aggressively. For children, if you are lucky um, and you take care of a lot of kids, you may have intranasal fentanyl laying around to set long bone fractures. Use it in this patient population. So we published a paper in 2015 in pediatrics um, and we actually give two doses of intranasal fentanyl as we're putting an IV in place. So you can give intranasal fentanyl, you know, two doses within 10 minutes um, while you're getting that IV done. And then you should continue that treatment pretty aggressively. The guidelines recommend that you can redose every 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and what that does, it sounds like a lot, right? So we do two doses of intranasal fentanyl, you know, wait another half an hour, give a dose of IV. 
uh, once it's placed and then hit them again if their pain is really not coming down. And that has led to significant changes in our ER. So we routinely send more than half of our kids home and they're not coming back to the ER. We've also not induced respiratory depression. So we're not whipping out the Narcan to you know, bring them back, even in younger children, um, especially if they've had pain before, the more uh, that you can provide pain relief, relief quickly, the better off you are. The ER is a very stressful environment and stress has been known to induce sickling. So really getting the patient back, evaluated, started on a treatment course as quickly as you can, can really make all the difference in the world. So you mentioned, and of course here, we're talking about a really high index of suspicion because especially this time of year right now, uh, where we're talking about everybody coming in has a fever and some pain in their chest and you know all kinds of symptoms that could easily be um, brushed off as a viral syndrome when in fact you've got, uh, you know, in a patient population like this, if if it's not well documented or not brought up or, or you're in a hurry or distracted or whatever else may be going on, it may be easy to treat this like uh, any other kid um, when, and, and potentially miss something important. You mentioned the treatment regimen and of course the, the early triage and pain medications. What are the other keys to management in the pediatric sickle cell population? So depending on what is going on, if it's a, an acute painful episode and you're pretty confident that given that laundry list, that differential diagnosis that I gave you at the beginning of the talk is not present, then really you're doing fluids, you're doing pain relief, um, you're doing warm packs and really trying to decrease uh, the stress level in the room and also any kind of distraction you can provide, whether there's a TV, an iPad. Some, sometimes people will think that if they're talking on the phone or playing a game, they're not in pain. Actually, mm -hmm. patients with sickle cell disease are used to this and they know that distraction is a powerful form of pain relief. And so trying to get them as calm and set up as possible is great. Giving them IV fluids, a lot of them have not been able to maintain their hydration is really important. You don't necessarily have to give oxygen unless they're, you know, hypoxic because it really hasn't been shown to do anything. But if they're a little bit more complicated, you're thinking about, you know, something going on in abdomen in children. Um, if they're if they're a younger child, you know, good abdominal exams are critical. Um, infants, especially, uh, you know, anywhere up to two years of age, really making sure that their spleen is not enlarged. And if you're worried at all, you know, get that ultrasound, get that. Um, CBC back as quickly as you can to see, are they sequestering their blood supply in their spleen, which is an emergency. So really trying to maintain <laughs> their hemodynamic status during that is critical. Um, stroke is very common, unfortunately, in younger children. So the highest risk of stroke in children is it's greatest under the age of five. Um, and it's still pretty high until age 10. And so if you are concerned at all for stroke, you really have to get that um, CT as quickly as possible and an MRI if it's available um, and really try to get help. If you're in the community setting, you really want to get, you know, the specialist name as quickly as possible and really start talking to them and talk them through. If there's a lot of concern, uh, potentially even planning for transfer earlier rather than later. Uh, these children can get sick very quickly. And you mentioned the flu, right? It's, you know, December, January, February. It's now widespread, it's epidemic levels in certain states. The flu is a, a, a killer of children with sickle cell disease. And so even if 
they have the classic look of the flu, do not be reassured. Be very mindful that these children are, can get very sick very quickly. So instead of just giving them Tamiflu, you know, offer them the antibiotics to just presume that they may be super infected with encapsulated organisms such as strep pneumo. And so a child with sickle cell disease and potential influenza should get Tamiflu and ceftriaxone at the same time, blood culture scent. Uh, you're just gonna go that extra mile, treat them as the, the immunocompromised uh, children that they are. Everybody has to have that, that secondary thought about the super infections or the co-infections with influenza as it is the secondary infections that tends to be the most fatal aspect of things and not just the MRSA when it comes to the general population, but now now throwing in the encapsulated organisms as well. And so one population where, you know, being a little bit more generous with the antibiotics, uh, though we're trying to pull back pretty much across the board in medicine with antibiotics, there is a population that definitely um, has higher risk and needs to be considered as well. When it comes to the when when it comes to this population, stay with this theme. You know, we got this. This is the flu season. You know, we got other cough and cold and everything else, strep and everything else going around uh, right now. And and really, honestly, for kids, most of the year. I mean, it's the only difference is whether it's warm outside or not. But for kids, um, when is it? How do we draw that line? I mean, clearly we're going to have an, a higher index of suspicion or a lower threshold for admission for this population. What is it that triggers, because we clearly can't, every single uh, sickle cell patient that comes in, we can't admit them to the hospital. Um, we need to do what's best for the patient, best for this, best for everybody, you know, and, and admit those who need to be admitted, send home the ones who can be sent home. How, what draws the line? What are the things and features we need to look for that is that needs to push us more towards putting them in house. That's a great question. I'm going to make one. I'm going to go back to my previous answer. I forgot one thing. When you have a kid with the flu, give mm -hmm. them ceftriaxone and also give them azithromycin. So these patients actually get chlamydia and myco, um, mycoplasma very frequently. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to be complete in my answer. Speaking so of getting back to the old pathology classes, goodness gracious, <laughs> we are going. We're going to go full med school here today on the front line. Oh yeah, um, it's so important to know. So kids with the flu um, or you suspect pneumonia, Tamiflu, ceftriaxone, azithromycin. So it's just not a cocktail we typically think of, but they need it. So what defines new need for admission versus home? So as you said, the kids who are sick, they're the obvious ones that are gonna go in. It's the gray zone, right? So, I mean, and the kids who are going in, anyone who's hypoxic needs to come in, right? So they really need oxygen, we can't, let them go home if their oxygen saturation really is falling below their baseline. Um, and again, that's where we can check in with their primary care doc or their hematologist to see, or just general, just salt. You know, if, if it's a little kid, their baseline oxygen saturation typically is not below 95%. So if it's really falling much below that, admit. Um, for those who you are not sure, they look, you know, they these are kids that you would want to have close follow-up. If they don't have a primary care doctor or a specialist um, that they can see within the next day or two, um, maybe they're new to the area or they're a teenager who's just stopped going and you are not confident that they're gonna go, they're gonna be able to see someone in the next day, then I would admit that kid to the hospital just to really give them you know, 24 hours of close monitoring, making sure that they are going to go on the right path rather than the wrong um, because that will, 
let us see what the blood cultures show. And also just a tincture of time, uh, acute chest can often evolve very rapidly and those first 24 hours are telling. Um, if the parents, you know, they don't have good transportation. So even if they have a, you know, a doctor, but the specialist is an hour away, you know, and they're not gonna be able to get there the next day. Um, and they're just a little bit sicker than you would like. That's a good reason to admit. So uh, these kids really, um, even though some would say it's a social admission, it's really not because they need that re those repeat examinations. Um, and if you can't get them, uh, whether it's because of transportation or falling out of care, those are kids that I would admit to the hospital. And even with the advancements we've had in the management of sickle cell disease, I mean, we're still talking about um, a disease process that still significantly shortens life expectancy. I mean, even now we're talking about lives and then it can expect to live in their 40s, which 20 years ago or 30 years ago, that's a huge advancement of where we were. Um, but still, we're talking about folks that have the uh, average life expectancy of 30 to 35 years less than the general population. So these are huge considerations. And, you know, it seems like the pediatric population, one, gives us the opportunity to prevent the damages and morbidity associated with their, their crises, but also getting them involved with the longer-term care and management, because that can be huge. I mean, we know with diabetes um, in kids, the management is challenging. They don't want to admit to having the disease. They, they want to be like other kids. They don't want to necessarily do the therapies and treatments and things they need to do. And so we may be the ones that are going to be seeing them for the first time since they've been out of management for a while or, you know, with everything that's been going on over the last number of years in our country with um, um, with changes in family situations and and access to care and, and things like that, the emergency department will be a landing spot for a lot of these patients and a lot of these situations. And I complete and I completely get it. You know, having that low index of putting somebody in the hospital because, you know, I, I do it all the time. I do it all the time. Of course, with my population that I deal with, my hospital it's usually the uh, 80, 85 year old uh, folks that live at home alone and haven't started to struggle. But getting them in to just get it all sorted out. Um, whether it's getting your specialist involved, getting the monitoring done, getting a plan together, figuring out what the next steps are going to be. You know, in this population, I think we need to um, be a little bit more cautious uh, than we typically would. Not typically, not necessarily more cautious, but, you know, just, just have a higher index to do a little bit more just because um, they are at a, at a higher risk population. Right. The one thing I also would encourage people to think about, especially we've, we've been talking about the, around the issue of the opioid epidemic, but, you know, so going back to the leading cause of why people come to the ER, you know, pain, right? This is not a little bit of pain. This is severe. Um, you know, mother, uh, patients who have been mothers have told me they would rather be in labor and have a baby every day than have a painful crisis. Like it's that bad. Um, so in this era of restricting opioids, I strongly encourage the audience to really think about being aggressive in the ED because they can actually go home. But then when you're sending them home, just be thoughtful about uh, prescribing a short course of opioids for home use. Because if we send them out with nothing, they're just going to remain, and the pain is gonna come back. It usually takes, you know, several days. In children, it usually will resolve um, typically in the next like week or so. But depending on how bad it is, it can last for weeks. And so, sending them home with 
enough opioids to get to their visit is really critical. I just saw a girl last week, I took care of her, been taking care of her for years. And so it was New Year's Day and I was seeing her, I made sure, I actually went the extra mile because I know this. I called the pharmacy, a couple of pharmacies, found one was open, had the oxycodone that she needed, made sure they had enough pills, and then gave her enough to get to the appointment on, that was a Tuesday, on Thursday, but I actually gave her one extra day's worth of doses just to make sure that in case the appointment didn't work out on Thursday, she had one more day to still stay, you know, keep her pain in control to make a follow-up appointment. Um, I think we have been pulling back a lot in the ER setting and have really restricted um, our use of opioids, especially prescriptions of them. But for this population, we can't uh, do that because we really are creating much more harm um, than you know, the benefit of restricting. This is not the population to be restricting opioids for. And I think that's one of the challenges though, uh, when we face um, these populations, if you look at just the stereotypes through the emergency department, you know, the population that comes in is, you know, the question is whether the, they're trying to abuse it or whether they're truly needing it. And, you know, you, you've got this pull back and forth. Uh, I remember this last, this last gentleman we had could be very confrontational with, with staff and um, nursing physicians, things like that. And so, you know, it's hard to, with everything we see in the emergency department, it's hard to uh, maintain that open-minded empathy um, with, I think, I think we tend to get a lot of fatigue um, with sickle cell patients and the dosing, you know, when we have somebody comes into, you know, it usually takes four milligrams of Dilaudid, uh, you know, per dose several times, and then I'll be all right to go home. Uh, and you're like, yeah, it's, it, it's so outside. You almost have to you almost have to separate yourself and, and kind of look at it. Is there, should I, should I always, I mean, I, I should always give the benefit of the doubt, but should, is there a way, is there, is there a way to hash out? Is there something we should do? Is there any way to tell? Is there something to look at? And I always know through residency, looking at the uh, reticulocyte count and all that other stuff, is there ways to, to maybe fluff some of that out or do we just need to, manage, come up with the protocols with our hematologist, uh, the plans for the patients. That's one thing I loved when I, when I worked uh, at the academic center, these clear and delineated plans that the hematologist had established in order to manage the patients. The patients understood them, we understood them, and it, it kind of took away a lot of that um, kind of the, all that bargaining back and forth with something that really and typically goes way outside the realms of typical dosing that you use. Right, and so um, the, the gold standard is patient report. And that is one of the most frustrating things because people say, what is their heart rate? Look, it's still in the 80s, you know, it's not elevated, their blood pressure is normal. But when people are in severe pain and they're used to being in pain, they're not going to have physiologic changes like that. Um, so we do have to believe our patients. And so um, I think the challenge is fatigue, right? And so having plans in place is one of the very best ways and is one I advocate strongly for to say this is our pathway. Um, and the first thing to do is really critically, you know, get the patient back, evaluate them, and get them started. If it's a patient you've seen multiple times in the last couple of weeks, reach out early to their provider and say, what else could be going on? Even talking to the patient, what is going on with you? Are there any changes? 
So, so these patients are challenging in part because not only do they have a horrible disease that is you know, progressive and gets worse as they get older, they also are a population that has a lot of social ills associated with it. So a lot of these patients, as they get older, they're disabled, they can't work. Uh, they, you know, have maybe, they don't have the strongest social supports. Um, you know, many of, the many of the teenagers and young adults I see, um, they're homeless, right? Their parents have moved on. Some of them have even moved out of state and the patient stayed behind. And so these patients have a lot of challenges beyond their disease. And so we really have to, you know, take their word as gospel for the initial evaluation and really get them started and then start layering in information from their specialists who may know them the best, what else might be going on with them. The last challenge that these patients face, which I did not mention, is that many of them, especially as they get older, later teens, 20s, 30s, they have progressive neurologic disease. So it's um, there's the overt strokes where we see it manifest in children and through adulthood, but there's silent strokes that actually happen in this patient population, and it leads to cognitive decline. And so a lot of these patients, when you start talking to them, um, you can, if you spend enough time, you can often see that they don't quite understand what you're saying. So we know that in children, you know, up to a third of them are going to have issues um, by their 18th birthday, and it just gets worse as they get older. And so these patients often struggle taking care of themselves at home, and therefore they end up in the ER because they may not have the tightest connections with their doctors or don't think to call them and get in to see them. So it's all of these challenges. These are all the things that we have to think about in caring for this patient population. They're very vulnerable, but they have significant, so they have psycho, significant disease, psychosocial issues, and then the thing that you don't see unless you get the MRI, which are silent strokes. So we really have to believe them. We have to take care of them. And it's a team sport. We can't do it alone in the ER. We really need others to support us. So whether it's, uh, you know, care pathways for pain, um, just really good notes, or even the page in the middle of the night to the hematologist, you know, rally the forces and get, get the information to take the best care of the patients. Dr. Trish Cavanaugh, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Boston University School of Medicine. A lot of resources uh, out there. I mean, they're pretty easy to find some uh, specific patient-based resources as well as CDC uh, and other clinical uh, clinician-based resources as well. If people want more information, have questions for you, how can people get in touch with you? Um, so they certainly can reach out. Um, so it's Patricia Cavanaugh with a K, um, K-A-V-A-N-A-G-H. But the best resources really are, the CDC has wonderful resources on sickle cell disease. The NIH, um, if you, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, has um, fantastic resources on sickle cell disease. And some of the guidelines that I referenced, it's all taken from their management of sickle cell disease. Uh, There's an expert panel that was convened in 2014. Um, I would point people to those two places first. Um, for community, and the other thing is to think about community-based uh, organizations. There's a lot of resources out there, uh, especially in areas where there are more patient patients. Um, and there's community members who have been actively trying to get patients into care. 
So the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America is one of those organizations. Um, they often have, you know, community health workers really trying to help. So uh, think broadly, but so for medical, definitely the CDC and NIH are great resources. And then for community uh, resources, uh, the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America is one place I would go. Fantastic information. And for those in situations like mine where you don't have a huge sickle cell population, don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, you know, look at those resources, pull in those resources, take a look at those, work closely with your hematologist on the uh, care plans and models. And if your patient doesn't have one, get them in there so they can get a plan and management uh, put together because that's going to be the best and safest for the patient uh, as well as for being able to keep them out of the emergency department and keep them uh, appropriately treated and safe when it comes to the many risks associated with sickle cell disease. So Dr. Trish Cavanaugh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you joining us here on the front line. Thank you for having me. All right. And as for me, you can uh, contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com. Also have ASAP Frontline on Facebook and at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. Thank you.